from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. It's called touch DNA. You touch an object and we can get your DNA from that. They were more than just prostitutes. They were young girls that had families. And I said, well, there's some suspicion that he might have killed uh, more individuals. Uh, I don't think anyone was too surprised. I'm Emily Woodbury. In the early 1990s, a series of murders committed by an unknown culprit, dubbed the Package Killer, terrorized St. Louis amid a spree that gained infamy through the manner in which the serial killer disposed of the bodies. The cases eventually went cold, until now, 32 years later. This week, police and prosecutors in St. Charles confirmed that they found the killer, Gary Muhlberg. The 73-year-old was already in prison, serving a life sentence for another crime, the murder of Kenneth Doc Atchison in 1993. On Monday, prosecutors formally charged Muhlberg for the murders of Robin Meehan, Brenda Pruitt, Sandy Little, and Donna Reitmeyer. The probable cause statement accompanying those charges says that Muhlberg has confessed to torturing and killing five women in total. Cracking the case involved multiple police departments and prosecutors, including those in O'Fallon, St. Charles, St. Louis County, Lincoln, and Maryland Heights. The press conference announcing the murder charge against Muhlberg became kind of a reunion for those members of law enforcement who had made it their mission their obsession to track down this killer. Among them was Bill Carson, the current police chief in Maryland Heights. Carson was one of the original investigators that first worked on this case three decades ago. As Carson explained, he had a personal stake in the case and seeing it solved. By definition, this is a serial murder case with three or more victims over a period of time with a cooling off period in between. There were a lot of police officers that put in a tremendous amount of work on this case going all the way back to 1990 and that work has continued over the years. Six weeks prior to that press conference, on August 5th, friends and relatives of Meehan, Pruitt, and Little gathered in a municipal courtroom in O'Fallon. Over the years, some 50 investigators had tried to solve the murders of their loved ones, but none had made the connection to Muhlberg. It was Sergeant Jody Weber of the O'Fallon Police Department who addressed the small crowd. And recently, in the last couple months, um, with DNA, uh, we four pieces of or several pieces of evidence um, have uh, came back to us uh, individual. Um, a DNA hit on an individual. So we're pretty confident we have the right guy. Um, myself and uh, Mr. Harvey went down and inter interviewed this individual twice now, and he has confessed to the three murders. Detective Weber has been working on this case for 14 years, building on the work of detectives before her. Those retired investigators, who had chased evidence of the package killer across St. Louis, they too were there, standing alongside Weber waiting for this moment. Um, we've talked to him twice already. The first time, he was surprised to see us after 32 years. Second time, he opened up and admitted to all three of them. So we are prepared to, I'm gonna show you a picture of him and I'm gonna give you his first name. 
So this is Gary, and he's currently incarcerated. Um, he's been, if you want to look, you don't have to if you don't want to, but he's been um, incarcerated since 1993. So we still have some work to do, but um, we're confident. You can't deny DNA. No. Deny, yeah. Can't deny it. So he couldn't deny it either, so that's why he, you know, gave us the information. The detective joins me now to talk about the discovery. Sergeant Weber, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thank you. And we should mention that Weber is a 22-year veteran of the force and a member of St. Louis County's Major Case Squad. Also with us is Ryan Kroll, staff writer for the Riverfront Times. Ryan covered the story this week, and you may remember that we had Ryan on St. Louis on the Air back in 2019 when he first wrote about this case, which was, at that point, a cold case. He was trying to reinvigorate the investigation. Ryan, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Detective Weber, what was it like to sit down on August 5th with the victim's family members to to tell them that their loved one's killer had finally been found? Well, it was an amazing experience to be able to tell them um, who was responsible for their loved one's death. I mean, I don't even know if I could put it in words, um, the feelings that you feel. Um, I know it was a long time coming for me for 14 years. I couldn't imagine what it was like for a family member waiting 32 years for answers. And one of the family members, she thanked you for not giving up, even when she was told that the case would never be solved. I wonder, you know, was there ever a moment for you where you thought, man, we're just never going to solve this? I don't think so. I always had a feeling it was going to be solved. Um, I know I watched those cold case files and shows, and their cold cases are solved with DNA. And I thought we had really good evidence to process. Um, so I always had a good, a good feeling and a gut feeling that this would be solved. And Ryan, you were in the room that day as well, you know, witnessing this moment when um, these victims' loved ones were seeing Gary's face up on the screen and being told, you know, we found the person. What, what did you notice? Yeah, it was a lot of complicated emotions. Um... On, on the one, you don't want to say it was a happy occasion, but there was some amount of, of joy or, or at least um, appreciation, I guess you could say, was, was definitely in the room. You know, appreciation to the detectives, um, especially, you know, Detective Weber in particular for having stayed on this. The idea that some closure that had been denied before um, was now possible. So it, I don't know exactly what the word would be for it. A lot of different, you know, kind of complicated feelings. But I know there was a lot of gratitude and a lot of appreciation and a lot of um, a sort of sense that there could now be um, a more of a more of a sense of closure that hadn't been possible before. And that means so much for these families that have really experienced generational trauma, which you detail in your reporting, Ryan. Um, you know, you've been in touch with them over the last few years, and you know, a lot of them are battling, you know, addiction, anxiety, depression, paranoia, and uh, I mean, I can guess that, you know, that's not going to stop with this, but maybe that closure does help with some of those traumas. Yeah, I, I would hope so. And and one of the biggest things I learned just sort of getting to know these folks the, over the last few years is um, I, I maybe we take this for granted or we don't always think about this, but whenever there is a, a whenever the fabric of a family is torn apart, it, it has all these sort of, you know, downstream effects and these sort of downstream um, ripples uh, caused by that by that central trauma. 
that um, had, had in some cases for some folks been accumulating for, you know, three decades. So yeah, I, I, I suspect you're right. I hope you're right that now some healing can be can begin. So the thing about Gary Muehlberg is he is behind bars. He has been behind bars since he was sentenced to life in prison. And this was in 1995 for the murder of a man. And this this murder didn't fit the same profile as the package killer murders um, a few years prior in the early 90s. Sergeant Weber, how did the victim's families, you know, react to this aspect of the discovery that, you know, the person who killed their loved ones has actually been behind bars for decades? I think on one one hand, they were happy that there weren't any other victims after Doc Atchison. Um, then on the other hand, I think they questioned why it took so long to get a DNA hit with him being incarcerated and with the availability of his DNA. And, and talk a little bit about that. Um, so his DNA was in the FBI's combined DNA index system. So why wasn't this discovery made earlier? Why Why now? Well, the changes um, in DNA and the advancements of DNA is how we we recover it from a piece of evidence. You know, he it used to be just blood or semen. You know, they could get DNA from that. Well, now they can get DNA from touch. It's called touch DNA. You touch an object and we can get your DNA from that. So just the technology has changed tremendously since that time. And talk a little bit about the other reasons this case ran cold. What made these cases, these murders, so hard to solve? The lack of physical evidence at the time. I mean, the one, Robin Meehan, she had the best evidence because she was only missing for four days before her body was recovered, where the other girls... They had been kept somewhere for a length of time and had decomposed. So therefore, there wasn't any physical evidence that they could get off of those. There were some similarities between the three, but that was the extent of it. The labs at those, crime labs at those times could only say these hairs are similar. They can't say for certain that these hairs came from the same dog or, you know, whatever it might be. But today they can do that. And and there were other things, too, like there was a fire in Gary Muehlberg's house in 1991 that might have destroyed some evidence. And, you know, the bodies uh, were spread across many jurisdictions. I, I heard that was part of uh, the reason it was so hard to investigate as well. Sure. The first one, they didn't call out Major Case Squad, but with Brenda Pruitt and Sandy Little, they did call out Major Case. So you had same investigators for the most part working on these cases throughout that time frame but after that uh, it did it did go cold Um, they did have a really good or what they thought was a really good suspect at the time and they just couldn't put enough together to prosecute him so there the cases remain cold do you think that gary muehlberg being in prison was part of the reason he wasn't suspected because the murder that landed him there didn't match this kind of package killer murder type. Absolutely. I mean, his last victim was a male, and a male coming over to buy a car. So that did not fit at all with what we know about serial killers. So it did. It threw investigators off. Obviously, if he didn't get caught for that or convicted of that crime, 
I'm sure he w- we would have a lot more victims, and he might have eventually been caught because I don't think he would have stopped killing um, the women that he killed. And his 1995 murder trial for the killing of Doc Atchison, that ended in a guilty verdict and a life sentence without parole, and it revealed so many disturbing things about this man. Um, Ryan, when you spoke with us in 19... or. When you spoke with us in 2019 about this case, you mentioned that there was a number one suspect. Uh, I think specifically the victim's family members were really sure it was this one person. You didn't divulge their name at the time, but I'm so curious now, was your hunch correct? Was the family member's hunch correct? Oh, no, it was not correct. (laughs) Wow. That is for certain. Um, You know, Gary Muehlberg, I think, wasn't on anyone's radar at all until, you know, this year. and a lot of folks had looked into the case uh, in the last 32 years. So this was um, very much out of left field. At least that's that's my experience. Yeah, Detective, what, what's your reaction to that? Is that just kind of part of the part of the process here where, you know, people are suspected and people can be 100 percent sure. And then, you know, evidence comes out that blows all of that theory, you know, out. Sure. Um, and I think when uh, Ryan Kroll speaking of the possible suspect that time, we're speaking of the same person. We've talked about this. Um, unfortunately, you know, they or he um, he was a good suspect at the time. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence that linked him to these cases. There again, that's why they could never prosecute him because there just wasn't there that one piece of evidence that they needed to do that. But no, Gary Muehlberg was never on anyone's radar. Um, It's kind of scary to think about that he wasn't, though. We're talking this hour about the recent discovery of the identity of the package killer. This is a serial murderer that terrorized St. Louis in the early 1990s, known for the way that he disposed of his victims' bodies. And with me now are Detective Jody Weber of the O'Fallon Police Department and Ryan Kroll of the Riverfront Times. Ryan, you spent a long time in, you know, the years you've been looking into this case, you've been talking with friends and family of the victims. What do we know about them? Well, I, what, what we know, of, I guess, of the victims, first of all, they were all, the, the four who had been, been identified were all mothers, um, you know, Robin Meehan and um, Brenda, Pru- or Robin Meehan was killed whenever she was a teenager. Um, Brenda Prue in her early 20s, Sandy Little in her in her later 20s. I think Donna Reitmeyer was 40. Um, so they had, you know, a lot of time robbed from them whenever they were they were killed. Um, and and yeah, the folks that you know, the Meehans and the um, Littles in particular, they're kind of just like I don't know, classic South City St. Louis families with sort of deep roots um, in that part of town. You know, a great sort of, I guess you could say, perseverance or a spirit and in and, and, and the Pruitt and the, as well. The, the, I know those families all, all fairly well. And yeah, they, they're, in some ways, they're sort of inspiring the way they've kind of um, persevered through this trauma and uh, um, always remained, at, la- at least since I've known them over the last few years, they've always been hopeful and optimistic um, that uh, this case would get solved. I know Detective Weber said she was always very optimistic and um over the last few years, you know, if I didn't talk to, like, for instance, Sandra Meehan, Robin Meehan's mother, if we didn't talk for a few months, she'd always, you know, text me or call me just for an update just to see if I'd heard anything new. Same with um, the, a lot of folks in the Little family. They were always, um, you know, keen to keep tabs on this, and 
there was always like an optimism and a hope that never, never quite died, even after all this time. When we spoke with you, Ryan, in 2019, you connected us with Barb Stutt. She's the stepsister of Sandy Little, who went missing in 1990. And she joined us to remember her stepsister and push for new interest in the case. Here's how she remembers Sandy. Sandy was a a party girl. She was the life of the party. Um, everybody that knew her just loved her personality. Uh, she was very fierce and protective of her younger of our younger sisters and brothers. Um, she, you know, didn't have a problem standing up for them. She would fight anybody who even looked at them wrong. But other than that, she just loved to laugh. She was a person that, you know, she was just happy all the time. And even when life wasn't going her way, she didn't let things stop her. She did what she had to do to survive. Barb also mentioned to us how hard it was at the time her stepsister went missing to read the very loud, often inappropriate headlines at the time she went missing. The headlines emphasized how several of the victims were abducted from the South Side Stroll, which was um, then the city's red light district running along Cherokee Street between Jefferson and Gravois Avenues. She worried that her stepsister's line of work in part played into why the case went cold for so many years. They were more than just prostitutes. They were young girls that had families and had children and had people that cared about them. And, you know, they deserved to find justice. And, of course, these women were more than what they did to make money. Detective Weber, what sticks with you when you think about these women? Well, they're all mothers, first and foremost. Um, I'm a mother myself, and that's the first thing that came to mind for me. Um, I I don't hold anything against them for what they did for a living. They did what they had to do to survive and support their children. Um, I can tell you one emotional moment for me during all of this was meeting Chris Day, the son of Sandy Little. He's in his mid-30s now, and for him to come in here in my office and cry, um, you know, not knowing what happened to his mother... Um, That just made me fight even harder to solve these cases. Ryan, what did you learn from the people who knew this murderer? Um, You write that a couple people described Gary as a narcissist, a stalker, a creep. Did people see him as a danger at the time? Yeah, I talked to maybe, I don't know, four or five individuals who knew him, um, None had particularly good things to say about him. Uh, his, I talked to his ex-wife, although she she had a more neutral feeling about him, to be honest. She said she, he was just fine um, as a husband and a father, although he had like a – after they got divorced, he had a – you know, he was pretty disinterested in raising his kids, she said. But, yeah, folks who knew him, particularly around this one um, diner in Overland, they said he was sort of intimidating. He sort of had um, – yeah, like a stalkerish sort of, you know, feel to him where he would sort of leer uh, through the diner window and kind of had a menace, I guess would be a good good way to sum up people's feelings. Um, now, obviously, um, for a lot of those folks, that was confirmed whenever he, you know, killed their friend Doc Atchison in 1993. Um but whenever folks would ask, we well, you know why I was calling, and I said, well, there's some suspicion that he might have killed uh, more individuals, uh, I don't think anyone was too surprised. Hmm. And Detective Weber, 
Gary Muehlberg had a history of violence. I'm reading in, in Ryan's article that in the 70s, he was charged with rape, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery, and then a separate aggravated assault case with a 14-year-old babysitter. I'm curious, I mean, is there anything that we can learn from that? Or unfortunately, are there just too many people doing too many terrible crimes to follow all those leads and connect them to cold cases, if, if that makes sense? Sure. I mean, that that happened in another state. So we would have not even known about that um, with him moving here later in life. Um, unfortunately, you know, nothing in those types of cases would have, you know, even linked him to the things he later did to these women. Well, Detective Weber, I... In the early 90s, it was thought that the package killer killed just three women, um, Robin Meehan, Brenda Pruitt, Sandy Little. But this investigation includes the disappearance and murder of Donna Reitmeyer as well. Um, and Muehlberg told you that there is a fifth victim, a woman he killed in early 1991. What did he tell you when you talked with him about this? Well, he actually had written me a letter confessing to those two murders. Um, he did not obviously name anybody by name, but the circumstances that he wrote in the letter, I knew immediately that the one was Donna Reitmeyer. Um, she had been, they suspicioned that she was related to the other three girls and connected to them, but they could never say for sure. So I, I knew immediately it was her. Uh, and then the other one, obviously, we went back down and asked him for more details. He couldn't give a whole lot more details other than the fifth unidentified victim. Um, he said he, she was kept in that barrel for an extended period of time behind his residence. So she was pretty decomposed is what he's saying. Um, but she was in a metal barrel, um, and it had a tight, lid on the top. So I don't know how much, you know, if anybody would have run across this barrel that they would even know what was inside. Um, but he said he left it in a self-serve car wash on Natural Bridge. So we have not been able to tie um, that unidentified victim to any police report at this point. Is this your next focus now? You're going to be digging into this to, to try to figure that out? Absolutely. Um, we have tried everything so far that we can think of to do. Um, there's a couple other things that we're still looking at, um, but we do need the public's help. Uh, I've you know, said this before, if anybody has any information or that sounds familiar to them at all, a woman in a barrel in a car wash, um, we would like to hear from them. And do you expect Gary to work with you as you look into this case moving forward? I mean, you have this kind of unique relationship with this killer where you have to kind of work with him in order to get the information you need to solve these cases. Certainly. I think we do have a good rapport, or at least we did. I don't know how he feels about me now that it's on um, out in the news and on the media, um, but I'll find out next week. What to you are some of the biggest takeaways from this story? Well, from an investigator standpoint, uh, my big takeaway is don't, for any investigators out there, um, don't give up. Pick up those old cases and see what you can do with it and get all the evidence tested. 
I think there's a lot of cold cases out there still that we can solve with physical evidence. And that DNA evidence, the the technology that we have today, you see that possibly solving a lot of these cold cases from, you know, in the 1990s and even earlier. Absolutely. I mean, if they did it with this case, they can do it with pretty much any case. Ryan, how about you? What are, what are your kind of biggest takeaways from this story where we are today? Uh, yeah, there's a lot. That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is that these old stories, just because they're old doesn't mean they're not, you know, worth telling or that they're good stories or they're interesting. Um, and sometimes an old story, you know, has a, becomes new again. So, Ryan, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Ryan Kroll is the staff writer for the Riverfront Times. And O'Fallon Police Department Sergeant Jody Weber, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. For more on this story, read Ryan Kroll's investigation online at riverfronttimes.com. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Doerr. Our production intern is Avery Rogers. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Our podcast proudly supports St. Louis artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.